0: Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining me for this latest episode of Full Comet. I'm really excited about our conversation with today's guest, retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Admiral Norman served in the Royal Canadian Navy for many years, becoming Head of the Navy in 2013 and then Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, as in in second-in-command of the whole Canadian Armed Forces, in 2016. Then something happened. Admiral Norman was relieved of his post in 2017 and criminally charged by the RCMP with one count of breach of trust. The allegations were that he had publicly leaked cabinet confidences, top government secrets, about shipbuilding contracts. This was believed to be the first time ever someone in Canada was charged with leaking government information. And government leaks happen all the time. So why him? What was going on? Given that the case was first referred to the RCMP by bureaucrats close to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, many people suspected that this began as a politically motivated attempt to target the admiral. Admiral Norman maintained his innocence throughout, and maintained a vigorous defense. Veterans, serving military members, Canadians of all walks of life rallied behind him, donating to his defense in what is believed to be the largest civil defense fund in Canadian history. And in 2019, the charges against Norman were dropped, no reasonable prospects of conviction, they said, and he received a settlement and an all-party apology in the House of Commons. This whole saga is considered by many as a blight upon the government, that such a frivolous charge would have been issued in the first place against such a respected and senior military figure. The conversation that follows is not about the ordeal that Admiral Norman underwent. The terms of his settlement are such that he does not speak about the matter publicly. However, if Norman's career had not been cut short, he would likely still be second in command of the Canadian Armed Forces, or maybe even now be in charge as the chief of the defense staff. So when it comes to discussing Afghanistan, China, Canada on the world stage, sexual harassment and assault in the military, and the evolving challenges this nation will face in the 21st century, Admiral Mark Norman has one of the most informed and senior-level perspectives in the country. He joins me now. Vice Admiral Norman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Well, hello, Anthony, and it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to our discussion.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we've really been focused on talking about COVID for the past year and a half. We've really been, in some respects, I guess, uh, insular in how we look at the issues that our nation faces right now. But, you know, there's a whole world out there and stuff has continued this past year and a half. And what are the issues right now that you're thinking about when it comes to Canada and world affairs?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I'd like to say is I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you and your listeners Uh, for the incredible support that my family and I received uh, over a a very troubling period uh, that's now behind us. And uh, I just think that uh, many of your listeners were uh, in my corner, and I want them to know that I very much appreciated their support. And I think uh, to your question more specifically, as, as we look um, beyond our own borders and even to the extent of our own borders. What, what we're seeing is a world that was uh, changing even prior to the arrival uh, of the pandemic and uh, has continued to evolve. And in some respects, I think is a, a more dangerous place now than it was uh, even five years ago and perhaps even um, at the very uh, outset of the pandemic. And I, I'm, I'm happy to explore some of those ideas with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's go into the terrain, let's go into the different areas that we're talking about here. Uh, I know there's state actors, there's non-state actors, uh, the, big, the big country everyone's asking about, China, the rise of a global superpower. What's going on with China right now in ways that matter to Canada?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, first of all, um, you know, we continue to see uh, China's impressive and genuinely impressive uh, military expansion, both in terms of quantity and quality. Uh, We see uh, China's uh, ongoing and increasingly aggressive actions as it relates to um, their uh, immediate neighbors, uh, in the neighborhood of uh, the Indo-Pacific, and we see um, ongoing uh, coercion and economic um, pressure and uh, the establishment of strategic relationships, often um, under under duress, if I can put it that way, uh, globally. Um, and then we see the, um, underlying issues related to um, the interdependencies and interconnectedness of uh, the Chinese economy with the global economy in general. And every one of those things that I've laid out uh, have implications for Canada, either directly or indirectly. Um, As as much as they're actively engaged in the Arctic um, to uh, how uh, the trade balance with the United States. Uh, potentially affects uh, geostrategic stability going forward.
0: I mean, basically, we're saying kind of everything. I mean, all roads lead back to China, which is kind of what they're hoping for with their Belt and Road Initiative. That's kind of what they want to do in terms of uh, the relationships they forge with countries around the world, economic ties, ties with universities. And there are so many different aspects of China's uh, presence or omnipresence really in Canadian society that that covers all these different industries all these different uh, facets of life I know previously we've had debates in Canada about okay you have to ban Huawei or you have to ban uh, the purchase of, uh, of strategic assets by state-owned enterprises uh, we need to get them out of the university school system what are the kind of predominant action item concerns that we should be talking about right now
1: well, I think uh, what, what we need to do is we need to kind of look at this uh, from China's perspective. And, and I don't profess, and I, you know, complete uh, transparency uh, declaration here to you and your viewers, I don't profess to be a, an expert in China, but, you know, I'm an observer. And, and um, I think it's important that we try to understand where China is coming from. And this is not necessarily to defend their actions, but I think it's important that we put their actions in a context, and then we can explore all of those uh, disparate things that you've already listed uh, in in a context of perhaps better understanding. There's a couple of things we need we need to look at here. One one of them is is history, obviously, and that relates to um, China's um, ongoing. Um, concerns and ongoing position that, uh, you know, never again um, are they going to be, be beholden to anybody else or the victims of anybody else's aggression. Um, and, and I think that that uh, is important because it, it permeates everything uh, that, that they do um, and, and the actions that they, they take and the fact that they have a long-term plan. Um, the other thing I think we need to look at here is it, it are the the vast um, internal demographic economic um, challenges that, that China is facing. Um, you know, operating as a basically um, a uh, you know a regime of totalitarian rule, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, managing a massive population. Uh, and trying to grow an economy uh, that continues to enable them to do the things that they want to do without losing control of their population. Um, and and I think, you know, the third thing is that, uh, and it goes back perhaps to the first point, that China looks um, uh, globally through the lens of um, opportunities and threats. Mm. And uh, historically, you um, it, it's never really been too concerned, I would say, with what the West was doing, particularly in the United States, um, and until it set itself on its path of the last 20 to 25 years, um, which is to basically reset the global system. And I think this is really important uh, for people to understand. This isn't about global domination in some perverse, Dr. Evil kind of way. This is about resetting a system which the Chinese believe has been historically biased towards uh, the Western powers, and in particular, the United States. And it goes back to, you know, the the treat the post-war treaties and the actions and uh, arguably, you know, post-war colonialism uh, from a Western perspective. Um, and all of the instruments of international affairs you know that that they have seen as being um, not necessarily conducive to their interests so they're they're trying to reset a system which isn't particularly interested in the Western views of democracy or the Western views of um, the you know uh, human rights and those types of things that we take very seriously um, but to them, this is all about a system of um, control, it's about a system of coercion, and it's about a system of interdependence. Uh, And they want to be at the center of that revised system. So I know that didn't answer your question, but I think it's really important that, that we put everything we're going to discuss in that context.
0: But one thing that's very interesting, when, when you make the remarks about human rights and, and press freedom and so forth, you can say, oh, well, well, how do you know that? And it's like, well, actually, Xi Jinping circulated a document among senior public servants, I think, back in you know 2014, saying, just so you know, here are the things we don't do. And that includes traditional human rights ideas, press freedom, you know, and so forth, enlisted all of these sort of Western no-nos that he's not particularly uh, enthused about, uh, you know, spreading widely and and getting, you know, activist passions for among uh, the people in China. So it's interesting that these are things that are, they're very well vocalized by China's leadership by Xi Jinping, and yet I find it sometimes hard to make that crack through to sort of the Western uh, public consciousness, to make people... Uh, really appreciate that what you're saying is is just 100 straight out of the horse's mouth
1: right and i think that that's a really good point i mean they're being completely open and transparent about this um that n- none of their actions i shouldn't say none but very few of their actions should come as a surprise to anybody who's actually paying attention i think part of it and and you know uh you know the reason for this growing interest over the last uh year or two perhaps, who knows, uh, stimulated by um, the, the issues around uh, the, the pandemic. But the, this growing interest in China is indicative of the fact that we haven't really been paying attention. And by we, I mean all of us. Um, and perhaps we, sh- we, we, we don't necessarily need to have been paying attention. You know, for the average Canadian, uh, perhaps it, it's, it's, it's something that uh, isn't really of concern to them. But, you know, at a political level, we haven't been paying attention. At a, at a machinery of government level, we haven't been paying attention. Um, you know, military strategists have been paying attention. Um, investors have been paying attention and economists have been paying attention. But writ large, it's been, um, well, you know, it doesn't really affect us. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that uh, they're being very um, strategic. They're being very coherent in their approach um, and and uh, ultimately, they have a plan and uh, their their plan will see, um, as I said, the resetting of a global system that may not be uh, the way we in Canada would want to see the world in, I don't know, 25, 50 uh, years or so.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting conversations we had back in the 2019 Canadian federal election uh, was there's this there's this organization that Canada is a part of called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank which was put together by China and You know, it's pretty much an attempt to supplant the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund uh, organizations like that. But instead of being these sort of post World War II uh, US led and and UK uh, led organizations, it's basically China's version of it. It's like, hey, come join these things. And, you know, they might not be a huge operation right now, but 20, 30 years from now, it'll probably be the dominant one. And we'll say bye to the World Bank. And it's like, That's the stuff we're actually kind of signing up for. And the press releases and the website and, you know, they'll probably do these press conferences where everything looks nice and everything. And they talk about good projects and so forth. And who doesn't like that? But it's like, guys, just be aware of what you're getting yourself into here.
1: Right. And I think that that is an excellent uh, and practical example of the very types of things that should be of concern. And, you know my to your opening question what are the things that sort of keep me awake you didn't ask it that way but that's that was the gist of what you asked you know my concern is that as a country um, we're not paying attention and uh, at some point we're going to wake up one morning and go oh uh how did we get here um what happened and uh, it d- doesn't happen overnight it happens through a series of incremental actions either acts of omission or acts of commission allow us to get into a place um where things aren't the way um we thought they would be and and i would suggest things um are potentially not the way we would want them to be going forward
0: mark norman i want to get your thoughts on the south china sea and naval operations in that part of the world a lot of people say if there's a world war iii or something like that if there's a flare-up it's going to be commenced at least in the water. I just plugged in into Google China aircraft carrier because I want to get the list of how many they had, how many they're building and so forth. I want to get your thoughts on procurement in a minute. But when I actually plugged that into Google, uh, I got a news alert that said, uh, this is from a news agency in Australia, Beijing's uh, Beijing threatens the UK after HMS Queen Elizabeth, so um, one of the United Kingdom's vessels, enters South China Sea. So this is the kind of stuff that I, I guess you know you'll tell me the frequency of it weekly or whatnot there's vessels that are going there, saying we're in international waters and china says oh no we 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 have different charts and maps and you do we don't acknowledge that major disputes over this sort of stuff uh seemingly minor little disagreements about a few kilometers uh nautical miles here and there but apparently not the stuff that could lead us to major conflagration what are your thoughts on the south china sea right now
1: yeah so this is uh, this is an area um of enormous uh, geostrategic importance, uh, as you implied in your question. And um, so again, let's just take a minute and let's just look back at how China views this and why this is such a problem. Um, So decades ago, um, based on history and their views that I described a few minutes ago, where never again are they gonna allow themselves uh, to be bullied by others, um, which is their perception uh, of their history. Um, they, they established, um, basically an extension of what they are declaring as internal waters. Um, and they express this through something that is openly referred to as the nine dashed line. Um, and th- this, if you're, if you, or your view or your listeners I want to Google it and check it out. You'll see maps of the South China Sea uh, with a series of uh, lines on them, which basically encircle most of the disputed areas that uh, have been in the news for the last decade or so. And what they're arguing is that these were historically Chinese waters and that many of these um, islands uh, and uh, shoals, et cetera, et cetera, are extensions of China's continental shelf, et cetera. All, all of the arguments that, that you would imagine would take place right. in, in, in an international maritime legal framework. And um, beyond that, they've been um, basically uh, annexing um, territory, uh, both water and um, shoals, islands, um, turning them into habitated islands and uh, declaring them as Chinese territory um, in the belief that um, almost like squatters uh, that they can establish uh, ownership whether it's legitimate or not by simply being there. And then they're being increasingly aggressive with the use of both their military assets but more importantly their Coast Guard which is a paramilitary or military organization uh, in the Chinese context. And their fishing fleet, which is simply an extension um, of of their own uh, government machinery, and so um, and they're pushing people out, and they're uh, and they're responding very aggressively to uh, the entrance uh, or transit uh, through these waters by foreign powers. Now, this is important from a international legal perspective because. There's such a thing as freedom of navigation, the right of innocent passage. Uh, This allows you to go through waters which are international in nature because you're going from one international water to another international water. Um, The the most obvious in this case would be the Taiwan Strait. Of course, China claims that Taiwan is uh, basically a rebel province of China and that it's therefore part of Chinese territory and therefore they would claim that the waters between that island uh, and the mainland would be um, Chinese territorial waters. Well, uh, territorial waters typically only extend 12 miles either side of the um, of the landmass. You can make more sophisticated claims based on a bunch of legal arguments, but fundamentally that's it. So, you know, if it's 24 miles, it's pretty much a slam dunk. If it's any more than that, then you start getting into some gray areas around... Um, whether there's international waters there or not, um, in the case in this case, we're talking a um, hundred plus miles, um, and and this is a, this is a, a real,ly sensitive issue for countries like the United States, who are uh, the flag bearers, uh, pun intentional for, um, this this premise of freedom of navigation, and they, ask allies and allies. Um, support this principle by sailing ships uh, through some of these contentious waters. The Australians are doing it all the time, um, the, uh, Canada has done it uh, recently, and uh, now with the United Kingdom, uh, the biggest uh, issue there is the fact that they have deployed um, one of their brand new uh, world-class um, uh, supercarriers uh, with escorts. Um, and are are making a fairly blatant statement to the Chinese that uh, they consider these international waters, which, of course, infuriates the Chinese and then just causes them to escalate this further. A long uh, response to your question, but hopefully useful.
0: Mark, I want to get your thoughts now on military procurement for Canada, particularly when it comes to naval procurement, since you've just established that, yes, navies still matter, water still matters. You alluded to stuff going on in the Arctic Uh, That area is believed uh, to be increasingly at play in the years ahead. Obviously, stuff going on in the Pacific. We're currently engaged in the Canadian Surface Combatant Project, uh, where we're trying to procure, I guess, 15 new warships, beginning in the mid to late 2020s is, I guess, when they'll hopefully... Well, well, I guess the last ones won't be delivered until much later than that. 15 ships that'll come in at a cost of... Well, right now, the Parliamentary Budget Office is saying $77 billion dollars. Uh, knowing government as I do, I'm going to expect that's going to be even higher than that uh, when everything comes into play. And it's like, okay, great. We need these vessels at the same time. You're like 15 ships, this many years, this many decades ahead. Meanwhile, we see the news stories about China builds bridge or hospital or whatever in eight days or eight weeks or whatnot. What is this project in a nutshell? What are its positives? What are its challenges?
1: Yeah, so I I want to come back uh, to the the issues around China and the comparisons and the building uh, in, in a minute, but um, and perhaps you'll remind me to go back there. But to your question, um, you know, fundamentally, this is about um, replacing and ultimately uh, modernizing and upgrading um, a capability that has historically been part of the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, It's been the central uh, component of the Royal Canadian Navy basically since the 1980s, um, uh, after we got rid of our last carrier. And um, it's also about rebuilding the capacity uh, to um, build our own ships. And I guess some would argue that that is something we don't need to necessarily do. But with Knowing how to build ships comes the ability to um, repair and overhaul your own ships. And um, if you imagine a worst case scenario where you don't uh, have the luxury of shopping on the international market and things are happening really quickly, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, do you want to be dependent on others or are there certain capabilities that you want to have um, in Canada for yourself, so that that's some of the the context for it. Well, Fifteen ships um, basically uh, is the the rough uh, calculation of the number necessary uh, to um, provide the kind of presence and uh, availability of a fleet uh, that has to cover three oceans um, that may have. Have to deploy uh, into harm's way, uh, as we were discussing a while ago um, in in relation to uh, the actions related to China, um, and so you know this is a massive undertaking. Um, it it is very slow. It is very painful. Uh, it, it arguably um, unnecessarily slow. Uh, so uh, on both of those fronts, um, but we're talking about. Um, what is the essence of the Royal Canadian Navy's surface fighting fleet. Um, Other navies have more ships and they have different types of ships that can do different things. Um, When you're only talking uh, in the order of 15 ships, uh, as we are, uh, the decision was made that we would build in essence um, a hybrid or a combination of a couple of different capabilities into a single ship. That makes it a little more complicated, um, but ultimately it gives uh, the Navy and the government of the day more flexibility uh, going forward.
0: Mark, moving on to something different, what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan right now? It has really been something, evocative images that we've seen, uh, those pictures of people clinging onto planes, and a lot of questions about what could, what should Canada have done differently? A lot of people were saying, look, this is going to happen. You're going to have to get interpreters out. You're going to have to get uh, the people who acted as security guards for the embassy out, a whole bunch of other positions, people who were basically de facto honorary Canadians on
1: the ground with us.
0: What happened there, Mark?
1: Well, I don't know precisely what happened, but I think uh, I think we can safely um, look at this through the lens of, um, I think, a, a general sense of um, naivete, I think there was perhaps a bit of arrogance. Um, that's not exclusive to Canada. I think the the Western countries, in particular, assumed um, a, a great deal more capacity and capability in terms of the Afghan security forces than actually existed. Um, and then, of course, uh, when we look at uh, the fairly aggressive timeline promulgated by the United States with respect to their withdrawal. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that uh, prudent military planning didn't take into account some worst-case scenarios. I, I, I have no doubt that some of those scenarios were um, certainly being considered uh, within the Pentagon and uh, elsewhere, but uh, the reality is that much of this was politically motivated and, and uh, the political actions drove um, where we are today. And, of course, the Taliban have been... Um, They've been waiting um, and they've uh, they've planned this. They didn't just decide uh, the other day to uh, to make this happen. They, they've uh, they've been planning this for 20 years since uh, the Western forces rolled in in two thousand and one. So um, you know that that's that's a probably oversimplistic view, but uh, that's my sense of what I'm interpreting uh, based on what I'm seeing and reading. And as for Canada specifically, I mean, um what could or should have been done I, I think uh the early indicators were pretty compelling um i think uh this caught uh senior decision makers flat-footed uh certainly um the government was focused on calling the election and uh and and that was their priority and uh this this certainly didn't fit into uh, their plans so a combination of things just created a situation that we should have been prepared for but weren't prepared for and and now we're trying to play catch-up and of course the the speed of events on the ground has has uh, overtaken the west's ability to really uh, take much more control of the situation than perhaps just providing some very um, isolated security around the airport which is uh, the latest situation that we're, we're seeing and hearing.
0: Yeah I've heard two sort of Different competing opinions on the Afghan National Army. One basically saying, look, these guys had 20 years to get their act together. I mean, what on earth is wrong with them? And the other that, no, you actually can't create this, this, you know, great functioning standing army in, in that short a period of time. It's actually not a long period of time to expect them to be able to go it alone in, in, in the sort of transformations they have to do uh, to their country and their governance. And I think you're the perfect person to ask about that. I mean, what what should we have expected with the Afghan National Army?
1: Well, I I think, uh, you know, those those differing views are both uh, completely understandable depending on where people are coming from. Um, Perhaps reality sits uh, somewhere in in the middle. Because I I think that there are merits to both sides of the argument um, as it relates to the challenges of creating a Western-style, you know, security forces model a combination of standing army militia type scenario police that sort of thing um you know it, it, it's doable on paper um but a number of things i think have have uh, plagued uh, its ability to be successful um the first thing is you got to look at the society in 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 its entirety and in general um, loyalty, uh, um, as we understand, loyalty to a nation, loyalty to a government—those principles that we 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 hold dear here in the West—that those those don't apply. And it it's not that they're bad people; they just that's not their frame of reference. So um, loyalty is to the person who's looking after you. Loyalty is to your chief. Loyalty is to so if you translate uh, your local chieftain into uh, a colonel or a general, then that loyalty it flows through that person. It doesn't flow through the office. Um, and so it's a very personal set of relationships, and that just compounds and multiplies as you look at it across the entire force. Of course, we also have the other problem with um, the challenges associated with uh, the what I would call the political and bureaucratic infrastructure of the nation, just not really... Um, what it needed to be. Um, And my instinct, and this seems to be um, reported uh, somewhat, uh, is that uh, notwithstanding all the effort that was put into training the Army and equipping the Army, those underlying uh, issues of loyalty and integrity, um, from a Western perspective, just weren't there. And those are the things you can't uh, you can't create um, even over a 20-year period of time. And my sense is that a lot of, um, a lot of these, um, I'll call them militias, that's not fair, but that's the best way to characterize them, it, uh, just basically either never showed up to fight or um, just decided that it wasn't worth fighting. Um, I'm, not, I'm sure there were a number of deals made at the senior officer level um, with, the, with the Taliban. And, and uh, so the force existed on paper, but it didn't really exist. That, that's a long answer. And, um, you know, is it, is it something that should have been foreseen? Perhaps. Um, I think there was a high degree of confidence being put into um, the capacity uh, of the Afghan security forces. I mean, it, fundamentally, it was the key, it was the foundational element of the West's ability to withdraw. So, um, if, if the political motivation was to get everybody out of there, uh, eventually, and the way to get them all out of there was to build a robust Afghan security force, then um, my sense is that anybody who was raising concerns about the robustness of the Afghan security force was probably silenced or at least um, not paid enough attention to, because this was a, a juggernaut of uh, Western intent to uh, to get out of there. And of course, we were out of there in 2012 and other nations around the same time, and it's been the Americans that have really been holding down the fort um, for the last several years.
0: Those points you bring up, though, that, that the loyalties are tribal, that we're dealing more with Uh, people who who think and conduct their their daily affairs on on a regional basis as opposed to uh, a national basis in terms of thinking of a federation. I mean, those are the points that people bring up who say we should have never really been been in there in the first place, aside from maybe a very limited campaign early on to sort of, you know, directly target uh, the real bad guys and then you get out kind of thing. So what do you say to people sort of rehashing that discussion now?
1: Well, um, I think... Unfortunately, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to look back at this and, and draw a whole bunch of conclusions in hindsight um, and point out what now appears to have perhaps been something that should have been obvious. Um, but I don't think it's that simple. And, and history is full of examples where um, you know the best of intentions and the best of decisions are made at the time with the information that was available, um, you know the the whole the whole strategy, if you will, around trying to convert Afghanistan into a functioning um, democracy with all of the bureaucratic and political infrastructure that goes with it, um, is a very noble and admirable goal, and. Sure, I can see how people would see that as perhaps naive or even uh, unachievable, but it doesn't mean it's not worth trying. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the problem with this is that, in many respects, the West lost its um, inertia, and the appetite to do this waned, um, and and I think for understandable reasons, um, you know, there were the the losses of life, the injuries, the the, the blood and treasure, as as uh, the saying goes, that was being expended to try and achieve this was was astronomical, and um, and the respective governments, NATO, um, you know, Canada included, the United States, the Brits, the others, kind of just lost their stomach, uh, to be honest, and, um, and started to put timelines on things that weren't really appropriate and stopped to look at the conditions that were required to transition along the path, whatever that path was determined to be, and started looking at milestones in terms of dates and times because that's what happens when things become political and this became political um and uh, it, it's as much a failure of the policymakers and politicians uh collectively uh a, a, in fact is more so the case than it is a military failure the military does what it's told sure it advises it implements the the strategy and um You know, I have no doubt that the soldiers that showed up to be trained were properly trained. The soldiers that showed up to be equipped were properly equipped. But then the challenge is, how how does the rest of it all come together?
0: Speaking of a loss of inertia, are there going to be spillover effects in terms of how both Canada and and allies in the United States how we think about any future campaigns in terms of assessing whether or not to even do them, and also whether or not there's a a demoralizing component in terms of whether or not we do them successfully, whether or not we have positive inertia behind them.
1: I think the short answer, um, which you know I'll I'll go beyond, um, the short answer is yes. And I think you've laid out a couple of very um, important considerations, and I would probably add one or two, um, there's several. But, but I think t- to keep this as simple as possible, I think we need to look at this through the lens of um, the implications as it relates to the political and bureaucratic policymaking machinery of Western nations and their decisions or not to employ this kind of um, armed force in the future. Um, I think we need to consider the implications of those who um, were on the ground um, and what what they're feeling. Um, and then also we need to consider um, the external perspective. And I think that this is, this is one that concerns me. I mean, those other two concern me a lot, but it's also how the West and the U.S. in particular as the de facto leader um, of this initiative um, are going to be seen by the rest of the world. Either countries that would perhaps at some point either now or in the future look to the West for help, um, or uh, competitors who will look at the West and think, oh, "Well, there you go. You can't rely on these guys. They can't deliver." Um, and uh, hey, why don't you uh, why don't you work with us? And uh, we'll we'll look after you. We understand you better. I mean, the, these types of considerations. So I think West. I think. The policy side of this is going to be um, overly simplified as being gun shy, literally. Right. Um, I think the internal um, considerations are, are, are going to be um, uh, morale um, and a sense of purpose. Um, I know that in in terms of my peer group going through um, our careers in the military, an entire generation before Afghanistan was defined by our collective experiences in Bosnia, um, where um, the, there was a sense of um, success, but also a, success, a sense of we can do better, we need to do better. That informed uh, a lot of the decisions that were made around Afghanistan. And of course, now you have a whole generation um, who have uh, lost um, uh, friends, they've lost family, um, they've been injured. They've been affected, and and uh, I know a lot of them are are struggling. Uh, and they're looking at this, and and they're they're quite disappointed and dismayed uh, with the this recent turn of events. And again, we've discussed in other conversations my concerns about some of the big players internationally, China, Russia, and others who will be looking at this as an opportunity. I think to um. Not necessarily on the ground specifically to intervene, although that wouldn't surprise me, but more broadly look at this and say, uh, what I said earlier, hey, look, you can't trust the Americans, you can't trust the West, uh, why don't you work with us, we're more reliable, we're going we're gonna to listen to you, we're going to work with you, we're not going to tell you what to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those, those are my three broad reactions, I think.
0: Admiral, speaking of morale, speaking of uh, demoralizing issues, there's been a lot of headlines, there's been reports, there's been discussion in the House of Commons in committees about sexual harassment, sexual assault in the Canadian forces, uh, ranging in, well, we're told, I, I guess there's hundreds of, of accusations. Some of them are ones involving higher-ups that have received uh, media attention, uh, ranging in, in severity. And then there's even the case of Major General Danny Fortan, who has now been charged with one count of sexual assault for an incident that happened decades ago. And he is accusing this of being really chalked up and him losing his job, being chalked up to a political calculation. He's eager to get into the courtroom to defend himself. So there's just a whole wide variety of stories that are coming forward in this broader narrative that is being presented as a military that in some sense is in crisis because of this broader issue. Can you shed light on on what's going on right now?
1: Um, well, I, I think I'll offer two perspectives. I, I'm not uh, I'm not going to get into any specific uh, cases or allegations, so I'll try to keep my comments as right. broad as possible. But um, you know, I think there's a I think there's a couple of key things to consider here, and one is. What what exactly are we seeing? What is it an indication of and what is it not necessarily an indication of? And I think what we're seeing here is a combination of a variety of things. I think there is um, an understandable and a long overdue uh, sense of pent up frustration uh, inside the rank and file. Those who have suffered um countless um examples of either abuse or um the uh, ill treatment or um uh, maybe just um a, a lack of action uh, on a scale if you look at it from from worse to least worse um and and i think this is part of what's what's playing out but it's not the only thing i think one of the other big pieces of this is um, an institutional failing um, with respect to not taking these issues seriously uh, when we were given opportunities to do so. And I, I think back personally into the 2015 period, but, but we could have done more before that, but let's just go back to 2015 when we, the senior leadership were presented with uh, an opportunity to, to really come to grips with this and to acknowledge the significance of the problem, and um, it it, we, it was it was superficial. I, I would go as far as to say, in some respects, it was window dressing. Even with everything that was going on in the 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 Deschamps, uh, Madame Duchamp era, there was still a, a very pronounced um, reluctance to accept this. Uh, and of course, you know any any behavioral issue, addictive issue, all of these things, the the first thing you got to do is you got to admit you have a problem. Well, we weren't prepared to admit the seriousness of the problem, and that has spilled over into um, some cultural impacts that have caused people to think that it's not as bad as it really is and therefore haven't taken it seriously. And also, I think it fed some of this frustration I was speaking to earlier. And the last issue... um, on that, I, I would comment on is that um, we got to be really careful here. Uh, you know, we don't, uh, um, we don't paint everybody with the same brush. Uh, I don't know what the statistics are. But the vast majority of the people serving in the armed forces of all types and all genders are and all um, backgrounds are incredible Canadians. Um, and that all they want to do is do the best job they possibly can. They want To do the best job they can as leaders they want to be well led uh, and they want to serve canadians and um, that they recognize that there's work to be done Um, they have a decent sense of right and wrong Um, but unfortunately uh, what we're seeing is are a series of these high profile events which cause people to ask i think legitimate questions But my concern is that there's a sense of um, tarnishing, if you will, the entire institution. And uh, certainly, um, I I don't think that that's um, appropriate or even fair. Uh, And I think that there will be, you know, I think they'll get there. Um, And the last issue is the internal one, and that is the impact on morale of all of this happening. And I I think uh, it's fair to say that there are a lot of those incredible people that I described earlier who have done nothing wrong and and are just good people trying to do the best they can are very um they're dismayed by this they're 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 uh they're disappointed by it they're embarrassed about it um and uh you know they just they 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 want to get on a path forward and uh and and continue to build the institution and rebuild the confidence um uh, of Canadians that, that they deserve to have. So, those are my broad thoughts um, on, on that. Uh, it's not going to be fixed uh, immediately. It's taken decades to, to, to screw it up, decades to get where we are. And um, it's going to take years, um, perhaps a decade, um, a couple of generations of senior leadership, um, which tend to cycle through every three to four years. So, you know, you. You need a few. You need two or three of those to really start having a lasting effect in terms of how you um, are are affecting the culture. So, um, but I think they're on the right track. I think the steps that are being taken now are appropriate, Um, and uh, I think really the only the only thing is that had we taken this more seriously in 2015, perhaps some of this might not have happened the way it did. Um, Some of those accusations will still be there, certainly the ones that predate 2015, there's no doubt.
0: One of the challenges with, I I guess, maybe the way we talk about this in the media, the way they talk about this politically, is right now we're told, I think, that this is the, the most pressing crisis in the Canadian military. Uh, right now and and I take your point of the generational change and serious allegations obviously have to be taken seriously Uh, but also in this conversation we've talked about procurement we've talked about the threats Canada faces we haven't been able to begin to talk about uh, recruitment challenges that the reserve is reportedly not in the best shape in terms of uh, need to expand the reserve forces and so on is it fair to say that the that the sexual harassment uh, stories and the allegations that that is the greatest HR challenge but we don't want the Canadian public and, and of course the politicians to to also not put pressure onto solving these other challenges as well.
1: Yeah, I think I think what you're describing is is accurate. Um, I, I I'm going to avoid ranking or prioritizing the challenges themselves. Yeah, fair enough. And rather rather than combining them as you've alluded to in your question, because every one of these has um, an impact somewhere else, and th- this is by definition what uh, academics have referred to as a wicked problem uh, in that um, it, 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 as you start to try and fix one piece of of this complex problem you actually create second and third order problems elsewhere and and you alluded to a couple you know if you've got a crisis in leadership people are leaving so you've got h- higher than normal um, uh, um, departures so you've got a retention problem you're trying to recruit but there's a perception associated with um, the, the the conduct inside, so that affects recruiting. You know, the all these things are, are created. I think fundamentally that that the, the the challenge, and this is somewhat um, uh, presumptuous of me to say it, but I think the challenge facing the Armed Forces in Canada is um, really a sense of purpose and identity with respect to um, recognizing how important the armed forces are in the incredibly complicated and challenging world that we live in today. And that I I sadly foresee uh, coming in the decades to come. And so it's a sense of not only the members of the armed forces themselves embracing what that means in terms of their overall preparedness, equipping, training, their culture, Um, all of those issues that affect their ability to fight, but it also has to do with the views of Canadians um, and and the views of decision makers. If you don't see your armed forces as a fighting force that has a legitimate purpose defending the country or defending their interests, then it's hard for the armed forces to get their heads around um, doing their jobs when the people who are paying for them don't necessarily think that their jobs are important. And I, I, I get a sense that that's part of what's at play here, and all of these other things that we've been talking about are <clears throat> important um, uh, contributors to, to to this this very complicated fabric that that we're seeing unfold right now.
0: Mark, before we go, you alluded earlier to the idea of those the issues that keep you up at night. And I know we've taken a look at what's happening with China. Uh, we've talked about what's going on in Afghanistan and, and the perhaps ensuing power vacuum we're going to see there. What are the things that we're not even talking about right now that concern you that we should be ahead of the curve about? I, I, know, I don't know if you use this phrase, but some people talk about fifth generation warfare in terms of everything being so heavily focused on cyber attacks, concerns around that, artificial intelligence, autonomous systems. Uh, uh, maybe there's other non-state actors that aren't uh, particularly on the radar that we're, we're not talking about in public discussion. What are those issues that, that keep you up at night ones?
1: Yeah, so the the types of things that you described would fall into two categories. They're either um, potential threats that n- need to be properly addressed, or they're potential methodologies, um, and they can be used uh, either um, by adversaries or by us. And so I, I can all of those things are out there and they're active. And as you as you alluded to, you, you know they they. they they factor into the thought process. I think that to try and put it in one thought, if I can, I think what really disturbs me is um, an underlying sense of a lack of purpose, um, a lack of a sense of who we are as Canadians, what we believe in and how we want to um m- make the world a better place or how we want to identify and defend our interests and I think that those conversations are um, they're they're shallow um they're transactional and uh, they lack the kind of strategic depth and commitment that I think we need to have and and they are not helped by political rhetoric. Um, As soon as these things become political, as soon as we start trying to um, uh, assign some sense of relative value to uh, the merits uh, of a point um, because of the party that it comes from or the leader of the party or any of these other issues, then we, we, we dilute the value of the conversation. And we need to be looking at this as a nation. We need to be looking at this... Uh, from the perspective of um, where we want to be in 10, 20, 50 years, not um, what is the issue that, that is the most pressing issue today um, as it relates to um, uh, the political rhetoric or a, an election cycle or whatever that, that may be. Um, I'm not avoiding the specifics of your question. I just think that all of those things, they, they color how we look at things but fundamentally i don't think we're looking at the right things um uh, from a strategic perspective
0: mark norman i know there's a lot of interest in you as a person and what you're going to do next and what you've been up to uh, please tell us some of that i also understand that there's a, a charity that you take a great interest in right now
1: yeah so i um I, I took a bit of time to think about what i wanted to do when i grew up um and uh <laughs> i uh I, I wanted to uh, do things that I thought were of value to um, others um, and that would give me a chance to sort of um, either contribute to somebody else's success or payback. So I, I've got a couple of initiatives that I'm working on. One the, is the Royal Canadian Navy Benevolent Fund, which is an incredible organization that's been around. It'll be 80 years uh, next year, celebrating its uh, 80th anniversary. And it looks after uh, sailors um, serving and retired veterans um, and their families. Um, and uh, But in addition to that, I'm doing some consulting work through um, a couple of firms, uh, one here in Ottawa, uh, and and that's where we're, I'm helping either startup Canadian companies or other companies that are looking to come into Canada and, um, and get involved with uh, some of our defense and security um, activities. And that's really exciting. Um, it's interesting and it, it's just fun to be part of something that's, um, uh, not uh, typical procurement in the classic sense, but it, it's also an opportunity to help these folks, uh, you know, get get their fledgling companies up and running. So, so those are the, and I do a lot of cycling and try to keep active and keep fit. But you know, that's that's it. And I'm still I'm still watching very carefully, and hopefully at some point in the future there'll be an opportunity to to make uh, an, a different type of contribution if if uh, the circumstances change. Um, We'll see what happens in the next few weeks here.
0: Mark Norman, I can tell you when I was writing on your story when you were on the front pages regularly of the newscasts of the papers and and the correspondence I got from readers, from from veterans, from people currently serving, and and other media can say the same. uh, When you you were speaking just a few minutes ago about what it means to be Canadian, what it means to stand up for our nation and stand up for our values, a a lot of people saw uh, standing up for integrity in the story of Vice Admiral Norman. that 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 was what it meant to to stand up for things
1: well i'm i'm really humbled by uh what you just said and um i think i've i've said this to you uh perhaps in private uh, but i'll say it publicly uh i um i took incredible strength and uh uh and incredible motivation from all those people who uh, stood by me and my family and i think that's a reflection of who we are uh, as Canadians. And and I think that that's, that's a really good sign. Um, I, I think uh, we're at a bit of a crossroads here and we need to make some tough decisions about who we want to be going forward. And uh, I thank you for your time and your support and I thank your listeners for their ongoing support. So uh, thank you very much.
0: It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Mark. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.